0: Hello and welcome to Fundamental Value, A Journey to Quantify Crypto. I'm your host, Joshua Frank, co-founder and CEO of The Tie. On Fundamental Value, we speak with the leading hedge funds, analysts, trading venues, and digital asset market participants. Our goal is simple, to understand how the leading minds in the cryptocurrency space are researching, analyzing, and quantifying the value of digital assets. Quick disclaimer. This podcast was recorded and is being made available solely for informational purposes. The information, statements, comments, views, and opinions throughout in this podcast should not be construed as a provision of investment advice or as an offer to buy or sell any securities or tokens or to make or consider any investment or course of action. You can view our show notes for our complete disclosures. In this week's episode, I am joined by Aya Kantorowicz, institu- Institutional Sales Lead at FalconX. Aya, it's great to have you on.
1: It's great to be here. Thank you, Josh.
0: So you studied international affairs in college and did multiple internships in politics. What initially drove your interest in politics and and why did you eventually transition to a focus in finance?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, (laughs) That's always the question someone gets when they studied politics in D.C., but then did a complete 360. And so... I was uh, born in Israel and uh, politics, international affairs had always been a main focus for me uh, growing up. I spent most of my summers in Israel um, and, you know, I studied Middle Eastern conflict resolution in college and actually uh, wanted to become a CIA Agent. Uh, when I was in school, um, lo and behold, you had to apply to uh, be a field agent uh, your freshman year of college, and I had applied my sophomore year. So I was told I was too old. Were you, were
0: you like secretly in the Mossad or something? <laughs> I was
1: not. Um, no disclaimers. No, but I, I was. <laughs> I was not in the in the Mossad. But um, listen, I was. I was right there. I was ready to go, full James Bond. But uh, ended up actually uh, deciding not to. And to your point, you know, did a lot of internships in politics. I interned for the Israeli Knesset, uh, the US government. And what I realized was that, uh, you know, governments are very bureaucratic, uh, they move very slowly. And some of the most impactful programs that I was seeing in the West Bank, in Israel, across the world, were actually those that were privately funded. Um, and so, there was this growing frustration for me uh, in terms of how will I have the patience uh, to move through a very bureaucratic system to get some of these small things passed. And so I decided, you know what? Uh, finance it is and uh, going private and finding these privately funded programs um, and democratizing finance uh, was really, really important to me. And and at a high level, I think, you know, what it's, you know, viewing some of these programs and engaging with them, one thing I saw was that the bond between people that conduct business with one another, it's so much stronger than those that was formed through, you know, some international partnerships, uh, signed, you know, in Brussels, for example. So, um, for me it was, it was definitely, uh, that was a pivotal moment and, um, can't say I've gone, gone back yet.
0: And so what was, uh, what was more bureaucratic from your, I guess, limited internship experience the the Knesset, (laughs) which is a disaster or the, uh, U S government, which is also a disaster.
1: Wow. You are just asking me to flip tables across both tables, uh, and sides right now. Um, so, What's the politically correct answer to this?
0: <laughs> no politically correct. We don't do politically correct. You can an You can you can hate on BV. You can love BV. You can whatever you want. I want I want the I want the truth.
1: Yeah, good question. So um, I would say that uh, the U.S. government um, was definitely more bureaucratic. And now the reason I say this uh, is actually because of I think size has a big impact. Uh, you're really trying to get. Uh, many more people um, on to agree on things, and that inherently takes uh, more time and resources.
0: <laughs> and I guess it's better than Israel. You know, you have two sides versus two hundred sides. So, um,
1: <laughs> right, it, exactly. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's there's it's an easier split in the middle. That's for certain.
0: And uh, yeah, and I guess in Israel as well, it's not like anything changes. Uh, you know, over the last. You know, decade plus. So, what difference I guess. we have had make?
1: a dictatorship, but once that's done, we'll see.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, we'll see. Uh, so, so what? What did you do after college then, and, and before you, uh, you entered the crypto space?
1: Yeah. So right out of college, uh, I did what most uh, people in DC do when they. Uh, don't go into politics. I went into uh, consulting. And so I was a banking and capital markets consultant at Navigant. Uh, we worked with some of the largest banks on Wall Street. Um, and that was my my first initial job out of school. Uh, you know, having been uh, at consulting, I realized that that was also very bureaucratic um, and wanted to join a much smaller uh, startup where I could wear multiple hats. And so I uh, joined Tegas and was the first hired there Uh, And what we were doing was outsourcing the buy side analysts at institutional hedge funds uh, focused on TMT investments. Um, While I was there, I was able to scale an office and team in San Francisco, help them open an office in Chicago. Um, And so overall, really, really great uh, experience.
0: And so what was your first experience with crypto and when did you decide to fully go down the uh, proverbial rabbit hole?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, I think people might have a much cooler answer to this than I do. Uh, For me, it was really while I was at Navigant, an old boss of mine was explaining a situation in which uh, he's from Venezuela and had to buy a textbook for one of his cousins. Uh, And the website uh, was only taking local currency or Bitcoin. Um, and so he was like, okay, I'll try this out, uh, purchased the textbook for his cousin, had it sent, and then never thought about it again. This was back in 2015. Um, during the 2017 boom into 2018, uh, you know, suddenly it was the talk of the town um, and he had brought it up and mentioned the story to me as well. And so uh, after doing additional research, I think like most people in the crypto space, I was absolutely hooked um, and you know, couldn't stop reading about it afterwards.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's actually a better story than mine. I mean, my story was super boring. It was just like, I was just bored (gasps) at my job and started day trading crypto because they're, you know, the, the, just, I was just looking at like, you know, when, when, you know, when Bitcoin forked into Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash and everything was going crazy and just, so, uh, yeah. It's just uh, cash is
1: gonna fork again soon. Actually. Yeah,
0: well, bit, well it what was Bitcoin and then Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash and then Bitcoin Cat Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV and now it's be right. Bitcoin Cash and ABC, I think, right?
1: <laughs> yep. Yeah. <laughs> how, how do you
0: guys even de- well let's let's go into that really quick. How do you guys even deal with all those forks? How do you deal with you know how do you how do you handle clients' funds? You know, if you're if you're holding those funds when a fork happens? I mean, does it does it go to the exchange level? Like, how does it actually work?
1: Yeah, really, really good question. And so because we're sitting as this, like, middle layer between us, the client, and on the other side, all these liquidity providers, it fully depends on, you know, what that fork looks like and what the liquidity is that we can then service. Um, so for some of the forks uh, that we've seen, there is little to no volume uh, that went into the hard fork. Most of the assets stayed in the original um, version. And so there, there haven't been issues to date. Um, but in this one, it's going to be kind of interesting to see how that uh, moves over for this upcoming Bitcoin Cash one. Um, we're excited. But so far, it looks like there isn't going to be any outages for liquidity. Uh, so we're hoping it's a smooth transition, if any.
0: And this is like mid-November or something when this Correct. fork is Yeah, I think
1: the 15th, if I'm not mistaken. I
0: wonder how many times Roger Ver has to fork a coin for nobody to <laughs> care. Like like at this point, I still think people care, but I wonder how many more forks he has to have.
1: Imagine if that was like a political campaign and every time you tried to run, it wasn't working. And so you just forked yourself. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's just, I don't, I don't, yeah, it's just, look, I give him credit because his mission has always been the same. I fully give him credit. He wants Bitcoin to be used as a digital payment, like mechanism, I mean, or, or, you know, what, whatever his version of Bitcoin is. So I give him credit. He's been consistent on that for the last, you know, 10 years almost. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, it's so ridiculous to watch all this infighting and things. And it's just, right, right. I, like, I haven't seen any assets really f- fork, and have a positive impact. I don't know. Mm -hmm. I I don't know if you've, if you have a different experience, but it never seems positive when anything forks.
1: No, I completely agree. Um, You know, unless you want to consider sushi swap a fork of Uniswap, but you
0: know, that's... There were problems with that one too. (laughs) I mean, unless you want to consider Ethereum and Ethereum classic, Ethereum being the fork and that being positive.
1: Right, right. Yeah. No, I I completely agree. I think typically the underlying reason of why it's being forked isn't large enough for you to create an entire new ecosystem on its own. Um, But yeah, we we haven't seen yet uh, a time in which that happens successfully, Uh, but that doesn't mean it won't happen, right? So keep an eye on your forks. (laughs)
0: So yeah, kind of going back to your story a little bit, you know, so you uh, you know, were following crypto during the, during the 2017 boom, and then you decided to join Pantera Capital. So what was the reason for joining Pantera, and, and what were your day-to-day responsibilities like as an associate?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned, crypto was very much top of mind for me. I was actively tracking it uh, during my day-to-day, both at Navigant and at Tegas. Uh, actually, while I was at Tegas, I remember for Secret Santa... I received a mug um, that had, you know, Bitcoin all over it uh, and buy more Bitcoin. And so it was uh, very apparent to me that this was, you know, maybe a little bit more than just a hobby um, and something that if I would have the opportunity to dive fully into it, I would take it. And so, you know, once the opportunity at Pantera opened up, it was uh, completely a no brainer for me. Um and while at Pantera, it was a just phenomenal experience. Really, it you know I was Pantera's at the forefront of all of the investments that happened in the space, and so there were hundreds of deals coming in a week, and incredible teams, uh, really interesting business models. You were getting your context switching constantly between you know infrastructure to applications um, to you know. Really, and this is I mean, mostly on
0: the venture venture side,
1: yeah, exactly. Exactly, and so working very closely with the teams, and, and what's been great now, especially today at Falcon X, is um, having had those uh, relationships made and developed while at Panther. Uh, a lot of that has rolled into both Falcon X as we build out market making, um, and you know, as some of these projects back from 2018 2019 expand into uh, today's DeFi.
0: And were you looking at liquid tokens mainly, or were you also looking at equity and, you know, deals? Like what, 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 how did that kind of break up?
1: Yeah, good question. So Pantera has four different funds. I was primarily looking more on the equity side. At the time, the liquid tokens had closed, that fund had closed. This is the ICO fund um, that's done really, really well for them, Uh, (laughs) obviously during the DeFi run up. And so no, this was more on on the, I would say, the end, right as you were coming off of the liquid token movement and back into, you know, full equity investments.
0: And so why did you decide to leave, uh, you know, the fund world? Um, and, you know, you know, the kind of the world of, of being an associate and looking at, you know, deals to, to join a company like Fal- Falcon X? And what, what, what initially attracted you to the company?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have this obsession with being super scrappy. uh, And luckily, everyone at Falcon X just has this immense hunger that was um, just addicting, you know, when I when I first met the team. Uh, And so we were actually at Pantera doing due diligence on uh, Togomi, which we invested in, and that was a direct competitor to Falcon X at the time. So that's how I initially met the company, met the team and just absolutely loved the drive that everyone had. Everyone at Falcon X is incredibly passionate about crypto, about what they're doing, about the real value that the team can create for the industry. And I think um, that was definitely what I wanted to be a part of. Uh, And so for me, you know, in addition to that level of drive, um, it was, you know, getting back on the ground, building, growing, operating. Uh, one thing that I always joke about um, coming from like, you know, the fun side to the operating side is uh, it all depends on your feedback loops and your feedback cycle. Uh, so if you're someone that is comfortable with, you know, putting in a check, doing in all this due diligence, putting in a check and waiting five years to see the result of that, that's completely fine. But if you're someone who needs immediate feedback cycles, you know, you do something wrong, you know immediately uh, that it's not working, then operating is probably more your cup of tea.
0: And what do you miss most about the investing side of things?
1: Yeah, so I definitely miss the exposure uh, and just having to learn uh, all these new and different ways that crypto and blockchain was applying the technology into real world problems. Uh, and so that's, you know, now I'm very much, you know, you were joking earlier, you were day trading crypto. Now I'm very much in my niche trading bubble. Um, but before, you know, I, I definitely missed having that exposure to more of the infrastructure side, the security side, um, the art side, gaming, um, and so on.
0: And so what is Falcon X? I know you mentioned that Falcon X at, at the time was a, you know, a competitor of Tagomi but what makes falconx different from you know other trading venues including you know i guess the remnants of tagomi at at coinbase if if that's still kind of separate uh, but also you know other prime brokerages like uh, a bquant or smart order routing companies mm-hmm. like uh a floating point group or or exchanges or otc desks like what what makes falconx different
1: yeah really good question uh, so falconx is a digital asset trading platform and and what it is it sits on top of Uh, numerous different liquidity providers, so upwards of 20 plus. And it combines lit pools and dark pools. And what I mean by that is on the lit pool side, you have exchanges, uh, clear order books. And then on the dark pool side, you have OTC desks, miners, very unique liquidity providers um, that we've been able uh, to find and source liquidity from. And so Falcon X, we trade as principal, we don't take any risk. Uh, and so uh, immediately after executing a trade, we'll go ahead and hedge that trade off. I think what we do really, really well um, is one on the data side. Uh, one thing that, you know, I think the industry struggles with as a whole is the cleanliness of the data that's coming in and out. And so, you know, there's a is lot this in terms that- of market data exactly and you are probably the best person to speak to about this um but you know as it relates to like what pricing is real versus not if i execute on this price is it actually going to be there for a client
0: um and so and so how are you estimating things like slippage mm -hmm,
1: yeah good question so at any given point in time when a client is pulling a price we're pulling you know thousands of prices on the back end and so um there's very very specific uh I would say, pinpoints in which we look at um, on the slippage parameter. So let's say the market moves like 20 percent, obviously, like any trading uh, service provider you'll probably widen out in order to be able to support that price um, and in sp- even taking a step back what we do is we offer point in time execution and so when you say slippage it's really you know like if I uh, confirm that this price is going to exist right I exactly on it right it's going to be there um, in your history page and when you settle. And so obviously, widening out is um, something that most people will see happen uh, during high volatility. Um, The other is just as it relates to the amount of liquidity providers that we sit on top of. And so therefore, the order book is much deeper. And there is more depth across all these players that allows us uh, to guarantee those prices, even when, you know, market moves significantly that much. Um, and so there's a lot of things that we do in Taylor in terms of, well, do you prefer seeing the best price or do you prefer, you know, uh, having a guaranteed price? Um, and that depends on, you know, how much wider or tighter your, your price will be.
0: Right. That makes sense. And so, First, I mean, I guess I'll separate these out. First, is is how many assets do you actually trade, and, and where do you see you know the demand among institutions? You know, is it twenty assets deep? Is it fifty assets deep? Is it hundred? Does it does it change? Does it kind of ebb and flow with market conditions?
1: Yeah, that <clears throat> that is a great great question. So we uh, we trade, I would say, anywhere between forty to sixty different. Uh, cryptocurrencies, and it just depends on you know your jurisdiction. Um, all of the assets that we trade, we don't touch securities. Uh, they all have to go through a compliance review for us. Uh, I would say, you know, as it relates to the large mass uh, of traders or just any institution trying to get involved in the space, it's going to be uh, top five. Um, but for those that are looking for deeper exposure into the space or just truly believe in the underlying value of a product or service, um, then you know that's when you see someone enter the more like 25 plus. So for example, if you truly believe in this idea of decentralizing automatic market makers uh, and getting a liquidity provider token, uh, and you think that's a great way to create a almost like a decentralized exchange, then maybe you'll go ahead and, and buy uni, uh, the Uniswap token because that's what you know you truly believe and align with. So I think it, it really depends, again, also on everyone's risk tolerance um, to to the specific crypto market.
0: And so you mentioned early earlier that, you know, depending on uh, geographic regions, you can trade different coins. I'd love if you could kind of dive into that a little bit. And also you mentioned not offering securities. And I'm wondering what you would view as a security, because I think that that's, that view is different. Like I, I know one trading venue, for example, which is pretty big, won't list Binance Coin in the US because they think BNB potentially could be a security. So are there assets that you, you would trade in the US or not in the US and other, and other regions and, and kind of why? And, you know, how do you determine or how does your compliance team determine, you know, what is a security?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So to your point, BNB is actually one that we do not service. Uh, and it's specifically because it's just in a gray space. Um, unfortunately, you know, I think as we'll probably speak to the BitMEX, um, case as well, and, and just regulation in the U S at large, uh, I think right now, um, if, if we don't feel comfortable that it's a hundred percent not viewed as security in the United States, we just won't
0: trade it. Right. That makes sense. That makes sense. And so you are actually the one that's like your client. You're, you're basically quoting your client a price, right? So you could hypothetically execute on exchanges and on venues where your client couldn't execute directly.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so the idea is really to create this one-stop shop where as opposed to, you know, you having 15 windows open, trying to find the best price across different venues where you are, you know, Uh, depending on your volume on each of these exchanges or OTC providers, that you have a different price level as well. Um, We're just trying to create that one window for you to do all of that.
0: Right. That makes sense. And I mean, also, you know, you have the issue as well of, do you actually have liquidity on an individual exchange to trade a particular asset, right? Which is one of the biggest challenges that funds face.
1: Exactly. Exactly. It's how much of this data is clean and true to what you're actually seeing on an order book.
0: Right. But, but I, I, what, I, what I was trying to get at is like, for example, let's say you want to trade uni well, you only have an account on exchange A, B, and C, and, and Unis on exchange D, right? You can't act, execute it, or you have five million on exchange A and B, and none on C, and Unis only on C, and then you have to move funds around, right? Which I think is a challenge for a lot of funds. Yeah,
1: I love this topic. This is uh, just you know the the major issue of lack of capital efficiency um, that we're hopefully going to be able to create at Falcon. We see it at Falcon X, um, but yeah, a hundred percent. It's the inability, if, especially since most of these, to your point, are on exchanges and you have to pre-fund an account. If you don't already have assets sitting in that account um, and it's not offered, uh, then to your point, it becomes difficult. But yeah, exactly. That's that's a 100% what we're here to do.
0: And so how do you guys deal with, you know, kind of the risk aspect then, right, of, of having to physically have capital on exchanges to execute on behalf of clients? How do you how do you mitigate your risk? Um, and, and how do you how do you kind of deal with that? Right? You know, because I mean, you know, look, KuCoin is probably not an exchange that you had funds on, but, mm-hmm. you know, KuCoin just got hacked, right? And, and you know, how would something like that affect your business? For example, if you guys had, you know, $5 million or $20 million sitting on Coinbase at a given point in time and, and they, they happen to get compromised?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. So because of our, I would say, on our board, we have very traditional uh, VC funds and therefore um, due to that and our compliance policy, we actually don't leave client funds on exchange, uh, and so therefore, never at that risk, which um, to your point during the KuCoin hack and, and just, I think, at large, uh, the overall risk of what is counterparty risk uh, when you're trading with Falcon X. Um, these are questions that we get asked constantly um, because of the extra uh, step that our board makes us take. We don't do so.
0: But would you ever have your own funds on those? Exchange? Like, how does it? How do you actually execute on an exchange if there's if there's no? Are you just moving funds on for a trade and then moving them off kind of thing? Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Got it. Okay, that makes sense. And so you've been, you know, you've been in the space for quite a while now, and and so I'm wondering how you've seen the market evolve since you first joined Pantera, uh, and, and more specifically, what was the trading landscape like back then versus what it's like today. Uh, You know, you pointed out to me uh, a recent piece from Arjun Balaji um, on, you know, crypto market structure 3.0. And I'd I'd love to hear your thoughts on that research.
1: Yeah, yeah. Good question. So I'll break it down into trading. And then I'd love to also touch on the settlement aspect, which I think is very big. Um, So taking a step back, you know, when I joined Pantera, we were just uh, moving from this point in which uh, you know, when you wanted to buy crypto back in 2017, the way to do so was on exchange. Um, you had to pre-fund an account. There were exchanges popping up everywhere, uh, providing liquidity, and um, you would see multiple across different geographies. As I was joining Pantera, you know, you were starting to see a lot of m and activity. And so you would see a large exchange pop up in every single geography that was gobbling up the other smaller exchanges, um, even to your point earlier about, uh, you know, someone who had 200 different exchanges. So, you know, those businesses um, were then acquired uh, by larger ones. And so what you were seeing was a large exchange, you know, for example, BIM stamp in Europe, you were saying Coinbase in the U.S., Uh, BITSO in Mexico, South America, China, uh, all have their kind of designated uh, exchange where the liquidity would aggregate at large um, as well. And so uh, you went from exchange to then the next kind of market 2.0 that Arjun talks about uh, that leads to OTC trading. And so for me what that means is that there's suddenly a maturation in the market where more sophisticated traders are coming in and they're trading in size. And so let's say, you know, to the points that we were discussing earlier, someone comes in with a 100 BTC order to go on to exchange, you know, here are just some of the risks and thoughts that were would be top of mind, right? One would be exchange fees, um, potential withdrawal fees. Uh, the second would be, you know, slippage, to your point, you know, how much of that order book could actually fulfill the price, at, you know, the specific price point, and how could I manage or control some of that slippage and that slippage parameter on exchange? Um, the next would also be as it relates to, um, you know, I would say, Uh, speed and time. And so uh, all of that, and and the last would be, you know, just this overall white glove service. And so OTC desks were popping up and uh, over the counter trading, uh, just immediate trading via chat um, was becoming more and more popular. And so you were seeing uh, large players um, come out that were able to service these more institutional, mature, sophisticated traders um, in market 2.0. Uh, the other things that you were saying on, you know, the trading side of the business, in addition to OTC style trading, um, was this emergence of of lending um, and stable coins. And so people who wanted to take on leverage and they wanted to take on leverage because uh, something that was really appealing uh, and again, going back to that maturation of the market was derivatives. And so suddenly you saw this flip in where spot used to be the largest market for crypto trading. Derivatives is now seven or eight X Trading volume size on a day-to-day basis, and so I think that's uh, really, really uh, a testament to um, the maturation of the people, the style of trading that was happening in the space, and then you know institutional services and products that were uh, built to support that um, and facilitate that. Uh, and so that's kind of this market 2.0 structure. Then um, I would say you know we're moving into what today uh, Arjun articulates so, so well, um, this market 3.0 structure. And that's kind of like, you know, even at my time at Falcon X, uh, we're seeing that today. So when I joined Falcon X, we were originally just, uh, over the counter, uh, chat trading. Um, since then we've built out, uh, a self trading, uh, GUI. Um, now you can service yourself through systematic APIs, um, and, you know, more, um, strategic, more, uh, You know, experienced traders can use those APIs um, and plug in their formulas and whatever they have on the back end for their quant strategies and so on. And so, just the maturation of the products and streaming and limit orders and order types are leading to this market 3.0. And are uh,
0: you seeing? Sorry, just to cut you off. Yeah. There, are you seeing a rotation into people trading over your GUI and API, and what does that kind of look like? I mean, are, are you seeing more demand and in, in, you know via API than GUI, via, via GUI than API, or people really? still chatting? You know, I'd love to kind of hear you know how that's evolving.
1: Yeah, that's a really really good question. Yeah, so we are definitely seeing uh, the more sophisticated traders. Uh, move to API. And so um, one way we we measure that too is is also every time we, we open a new market that we're able to support on API, you'll see that sophisticated trader move their trading from uh, you know, GUI to API systematic. Um, but I will say that the market isn't there where most of the you know folks that we support on our platform have sophisticated quant strategies running on fully integrated APIs. Um, and so we're getting there, uh, but we're still not there to where you would imagine more on the traditional side, um, where most trading is done, uh, systematically.
0: Right. That makes sense. Did you have anything to add to that last question? Sorry. I know you, I cut you off there a little bit. Yeah, no worries. Oh my God. I I could ramble
1: about this, uh, for years. So, um, (laughs) feel free to interrupt me at any point, but, um, the only thing I was going to touch on was, Uh, this last point as it relates to market 3.0. And so market 3.0 really focuses the, I would say, you know, the last six months have really focused around capital efficiency. And so this is actually something that you just touched on earlier, right? Let's say that I have to pre-fund multiple exchanges, but then the, uh, you know, the last exchange that I didn't pre-fund is the one that launches a token that I actually want to trade. And so, it becomes really, really difficult uh, to move assets around. And so one thing I want to touch on as it relates to capital efficiency is that DeFi is creating almost like cross margin collateralization. And the way they're doing it is emphasizing um, the way that you are settling and moving assets across different platforms that initially wouldn't really speak to one another. Um, So an example of that is, I don't know if you're familiar with MetaMask, Okay. So MetaMask is obviously this, uh, you know, non-custodial wallet um, that hooks across all these different platforms. And so uh, today, if you wanted to trade spot with Falcon X, you know, derivatives on FTX, uh, you wanted to trade CME futures, um, you wanted to borrow from BlockFi, uh, you're, you know, creating multiple different accounts. Uh, You're hooking up your Silvergate or your bank wire, um, and you're having to you know, deal with the onboardings of all of these, uh, and therefore the operation side of all of these as well. In DeFi, you would plug in your MetaMask um, into you know, whatever it might be, let's say, if you're doing synthetics for derivatives, if you're doing compound for lending, Uniswap for spot, um, all of these decentralized players, and you have this non-custodial wallet uh, that was able to facilitate this cross-margin collateralization. And so... It uh really created this efficiency that allowed people to access uh more credit uh, that was decentralized, uh, more spot um, that's decentralized, uh, and you know, really interesting um order types such as uh synthetics and derivatives uh, that are also decentralized.
0: And so how does that how does that impact you? Um mm-hmm. how does it impact Falcon X in your business? Because I have to imagine it's not like I, it's not like a huge amount of your, a number of your clients are now just leaving and only trading on DEXs, right? I mean, there's a, one, there's a tremendous amount of risk there. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, these things are not necessarily as, as liquid. I mean, though, we have seen Uniswap volume, you know, incredibly high in the past, like, like what is the actual day to day impact on on Falcon X and, and, and I guess trading venues more broadly that are that are centralized?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. So, you know, on the Uniswap side, I believe today was the first time that a single Uniswap pool had a 24 hour volume over a billion dollars. Uh, and it was the ETH USDT pool. Um, so it wasn't even, you know, an altcoin specifically. It was uh, ETH USDT tether, um, a stable coin. And
0: so... Wasn't wasn't part of that? Had ha- had to do with the the harvest hack though, and just trying. Yeah, to... definitely.
1: I mean, it's definitely all completely tied uh, to DeFi. But I, <laughs> I agree. I still think it's it's very interesting that you know folks are using decentralized platforms like Uniswap as opposed to you know getting that from exchanges and then moving it into the DeFi protocols. Um, and I think a lot of the reason there is, again, because of MetaMask and this just immediate ease of use uh, through kind of this one settlement layer. But back to your point as it relates to kind of what's the impact on Falcon X. Uh, so I almost think that we're diving into the question of like C5 versus DeFi and can you have one versus the other? And is DeFi going to unroot us all? Um, and I actually think that the two marry each other very, very well. Uh, and the reason I think that is... You know, a lot of first off on the on the DeFi side, it's actually a lot of the activity that we've been seeing is is primarily on the retail side. Uh, and so it is um, not very large institutions that we tend to service uh, as well. And so the question that we keep get asking actually through this entire DeFi wave is, hey, I'm not comfortable um, with, uh, you know, this. Really large slippage um, on Uniswap, or I'm not comfortable with the Ethereum gas fees I have to pay in order to make this execution go through. I'm not comfortable because you know suddenly there's congestion on the blockchain, and I don't even know if my transaction or settlement happened. Or you know I want to uh, understand liquidity provisioning, but I'm not sure I understand impermanent loss. Um, and so on the larger institutional trader side, I think there's definitely still a place in which um, You know, centralized CFI has a role, a very significant role. Um, And what we were able to do on the DeFi side is match a lot of these uh, tokens with natural buyers and sellers. And so you would get rid of uh, this kind of intermediary um, of, you know, the potential slippage and Ethereum gas fees uh, that a lot of people were facing when they were executing on on Uniswap.
0: And I wonder, and I know we were going to hit on this later what happens? Well, let's, let's sit on this now, actually. (laughs) So what is, what is the BitMEX CFTC rolling mean for, for DeFi? Uh, and, and my point there being one of, I think the, the, the attractions of DeFi is the fact that you don't have to KYC. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, my, my, you know, completely, you know, lack of legal basis opinion on this whole scenario is that, these DeFi platforms are going to have to KYC their users. I mean, you're you're violating the Bank Secrecy Act if you're serving U.S. users and not, you know, not KYCing them. So, I mean, you know, I think part of the attraction is like U.S. retail customers that can no longer trade on a number of venues are getting exposure to tokens through DeFi. Right. Um, but once they have to get KYCed, you know, maybe they don't have that you know, exposure anymore. So I don't, I mean, I don't know what your thoughts are there and, and how that will impact if one, if they're going to have to KYC mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, what's going to happen to DeFi founders? Are they, you know, fucked? I don't have, I don't have a better word <laughs> other than that. And, you know, how is that going to impact, you know, volumes on DeFi?
1: Yeah. I listen, if I were a DeFi founder sitting in on U S soil um, I would be packing my bags and leaving, um, and the reason for that is is that I think this was very much a movement by the U.S. government to say that uh, you are not immune um, to the these laws and regulations that protect U.S. retail users. Uh, and so, I I think to all the points that you just made, DeFi protocols are going to have to figure out a way to provide uh, KYC services, um, otherwise, then they just choose not to service U.S. retail. I think. Um, That's very much, in my opinion, I think, you know, the U.S. regulation is very much saying, listen, if you don't have to service the U.S. market, but if you want to, these are the rules that are really important to us. And one of them being, you know, bank secrecy, uh, specifically as it relates to terrorism and blacklisted wallets on OFAC.
0: Right. No, I think that I think that makes sense. And so, what are your thoughts on you know DeFi? You know more broadly. Um, you know what is real? What's fake? You know. Do, you know what, if anything, do you think has staying power?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So I think you know back during Pantera, you were seeing a lot of these projects raise capital with only a white paper and perhaps a team member that was public on LinkedIn. Um, now you're seeing you know, actual products that are built that have money running like through them. There's trading vol- daily trading volume. There are KPIs you can measure against these. Um, and so I think you know, that very much is uh, a testament to a lot of the stuff staying because I really do think it's solving an inherent problem. Um, actually, funny enough, Uh, Over the last week since the PayPal news has been announced, uh, multiple times people in the traditional world have said, oh, you know, I just think crypto is chasing a problem um, to be solved. Not necessarily that there's a problem, uh, an immediate problem that needs crypto um, to solve it. And uh, I actually think that um, the reason that people feel that way is because uh, they're focusing on the wrong audience. DeFi was, in my opinion, the first time where we were really building products for retail. As opposed to institutions and so for the first time it wasn't about you know what's institutional adoption going to look like it was really just you know this retail user wants to uh trade a sophisticated trade on a derivatives platform and wants to easily access you know x y and z on four different platforms and so that created really beautiful ui ux It created a very seamless experience it created something that now we're thinking all right how do we expand this to the institutional side and so i think because we were able to flip the audience that we were targeting it to um we were able to create products that actually work uh now um now we just need to figure out how to how to scale them
0: yeah and i think the you know one of the wrong approaches that everybody had to what attracts institutions is What attracts institutions is retail. I mean, Mm -hmm. order flow and liquidity and and volatility is incredibly attractive. Um, You know, one of the reasons lots of institutions can't hop into the space or haven't is just because the liquidity isn't there. Um, And I think that this solves for a lot of those issues. And I Mm -hmm. think that, you know, the rise in interest and look, the more people that get involved, the more institutions are going to be interested, is my perspective, at least.
1: Yeah, the the, everyone's chasing the Robin Hood user these days. Uh, So (laughs) I couldn't agree with you more.
0: Yeah. And I mean, I think I think, you know, and a lot of people were, you know, on the early, you know, on the early side, a little bit anti speculation. But I think (laughs) speculation is necessary. You need speculators to build a market. Um, So yeah, yeah, no, totally. And so you know, on, on kind of the back of regulation, what do you think about privacy coins and, and how do you think regulators will handle assets like Monero and Zcash?
1: They won't. <laughs> I really just, uh, you know, I think the DOJ just published, uh, I believe it was 86 pages on kind of um, best uh, rules to comply by and you know, really was a, a transparent way for uh, folks in the industry to know, you know, what's important to the DOJ, what are they really focused on and looking out for? And one of them was encryption. Um, and I know, like, right now, if you look at members of Congress, uh, that's really one of the hot topics. It's um, traceability, and uh, going back to what we discussed earlier, it's bank secrecy. And so, I think. Um, you know, I had a conversation with uh, someone who's in the privacy coin space, and he made a really, really interesting topic that stuck with me. He said that the hardest part um, about building this technology is not the underlying tech. The hardest part is the human aspect of it, is making sure that then the tech abides by the regulation, the compliance aspects, the auditing, the accounting, and so, and then adjusting the tech to make sure that works. And so right now, some interesting projects are working on a way for you to have a privacy token, um, but then certain accounts and wallets uh, and users and can have specific access uh, to viewing it. So let's say if the government does need to go in, um, they'll have access to view all the transactions and traceability. Um, so almost like half privacy.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, that seems like that goes against a lot of what you know the li- crypto libertarians kind of stand for but so how does the government shut down privacy tokens they just shut off the fiat on ramps do they go after the founders how, how 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 do you think something like that would be facilitated
1: yeah that's a really good question um i think everything you just mentioned right it, it's kind of like you know how did US shut down BitMEX and they just picked up the founders. So um, I, I think that's it. You know, The founders of these tokens are, are very notable. Um, everyone kind of knows who they are. Uh, and one thing I've actually found very interesting is, is that for a lot of these, I'm curious to hear your thoughts too, but for a lot of these exchanges and projects, we're actually noticing now that there's been a bit more of a crackdown on some of these, um, that they're very centralized for what we thought was a very decentralized um, maybe product or service or, or protocol. Uh, and so, you know, the, the U S will pick up someone and suddenly you can't withdraw your assets from, um, an exchange because that person was the approver of all withdrawals. And I imagine that you'll see something very similar with protocols where if one of the founding members may be picked up, uh, you may see or highlight some transparency in which, which protocols are, um, decentralized versus not, which is not what I'm saying, that we should pick up co-founders in order to figure out who's transparent and who are fully decentralized and who isn't. But um, I definitely think uh, it's you'll, you'll see it happen. And actually, an example of that was during the KuCoin hack. Um, KuCoin had asked a lot of projects to um, halt operations and a lot of the, uh, I would say, quote unquote, decentralized protocols um, did so. And so it turned out, you know, they're not all as decentralized as we think they are.
0: No, I mean, I, I the one thing that I like to say is that this market isn't decentralized; it's disorganized, uh, is what it kind <laughs> yeah. of what it kind of feels like to me. But I, it's funny you go on websites like you go on Tron's website; they talk about this decentralized, decentralized, decentralized. Before they even show Tron's LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, etc., Justin Sons is shown. Like, how can you claim to be decentralized? And then you put, I mean, look, Tron is an exception to everything that I think a lot of people stand for in crypto. Right. But I mean, just broadly speaking, I mean, you know, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't make much sense to me. It's like, you know, everybody says, oh, we're moving to decentralized, we're moving to decentralized, we're moving to decentralized. And it just, it just, you know, it's like seven years, eight years, 10 years later, you know, it's, it still feels like progress hasn't been made, but I think certainly a lot of the DeFi platforms have become you know, more, you know, I guess quasi-decentralized at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, one thing I think is very funny is uh, in crypto, we love labels. We really do. Um, And so we'll toss blockchain on everything. We'll toss decentralized on everything. Um, I don't understand why,
0: though. I feel like we're just trying to confuse people. (laughs) Like with all this DeFi stuff, you know, like I have people on my team who have been in crypto full time for multiple years who will go on a website for like, you know, like I I know somebody on my team went on Curve's website the other day and was like, I don't understand a single word that I just read. (laughs) Like, I don't understand how we're going to attract the masses if we can't, if people in our industry don't understand what's going on. It's like every day we come up like, you know you know, grin comes out and it's mimble, wimble, like privacy, mm-hmm. like, yeah. like how are we going to attract people <laughs> if that's our marketing? Right. You know, I think, yeah. you know, I, I brought on, I just brought on uh, Samantha Bobot, who I know, you know, from DCG yeah, and yeah. she was talking about it and she's like, look, like the marketing that we need to have is like, you know, look, it's, you know, we don't want to say it, but just tell people Bitcoin is a digital cash. Right. right? And it can right. be like, like, I think we just need to simplify a lot of what we're saying. Cause I think we're just confusing people.
1: Absolutely. And one thing I'll say to this is having. Worked with a lot of these projects is that we underestimate the ability for people to sell themselves and market themselves uh, the way perhaps you and I might be able to. And so, you know, most of the people working in the space are engineers, they're computer scientists, they're, you know, highly, highly. Uh, structured data analysts, um, maybe not so much on the marketing side. And so what, my, my, what might come natural to you and me where, you know, mimble wimble is perhaps not the great uh, <laughs> way terminology to use um, if you're trying to describe, you know, privacy um, might not be as uh, clear. I still don't know me.
0: what it means, by the way. Still have zero clue. <laughs> But yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, it's even even, even what, with what we do, right? Like originally, you know, we were going out, look, we have AI and we use machine learning and natural language processing and those words sound fancy to people, but people don't know what they mean. Right. And at the end of the day, I think if we're trying to sell something as an industry, instead of selling, you know, these fancy words, we should start selling what it does for somebody and, and why it's helpful. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges we've had.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And that goes back, you know, I think very, very well articulated to the point of, you know. I don't think all of crypto and Bitcoin and blockchain um, projects are chasing problems. I think when we're able to market uh, specifically the the issues that we're solving, then it becomes much more apparent.
0: Yeah, and I think it's moving from speculation to utility. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that certainly there has has been some level of utility that has been built. Like, I think the Bitcoin as a digital gold narrative makes sense. I think there's utility there. Right. And I think, you know, Ethereum being able to have, you know, smart contracts built on top of it, you know, whether or not there was any utility that a few years ago, it seems like there is now with, you know, DeFi and all the stable coins being issued and things like that. But, yeah, I think I think those those kinds of things need to need to be highlighted, uh, you know, a lot more than they are today.
1: Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Yeah, I completely agree. We need a we need a PR firm for the entire industry.
0: <laughs> we do. I think DCG has done a decent job at it, um, and you know, I think I think they're they're trying to do a job at, it. and I think Coinbase has, and you know, I think there's lots of, uh, you know, DCG just bought, I'm, and I'm blanking on the name. I don't I don't know if you you'll know that that exchange that they just bought in Europe. Um, which has done a lot of work on just simplifying the whole crypto narrative. And I think like, you know, even like an eToro oh, Luna. has done that pretty well. Mm-hmm. Luno, exactly, exactly. I think that's incredibly important. But mm-hmm. kind of hopping back, I know we've gone back and forth a little bit, you know, we kind of went on a tangent there with DeFi, but back into trading. So uh, has the market become more competitive um, since you, you know, first joined Falcon X, but uh, maybe even when you're at Pantera and, you know, has that TAM actually grown? Mm-hmm. Um, and And, you know, Let's start with there and then I'll kind of tag on a second half of that question.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a hundred percent, I think the market has um, become more competitive. You're seeing more and more players in the space, you know, trying to solve best execution, uh, trying to solve um, trading, trying to solve like, you know, uh, one stop shop for all things trading in crypto. Um, And one thing I want to say about this is uh, that's great. That's a great problem to have. It means that when there is more competition, uh, it means we're moving faster and quicker to you know, potentially what I hope is the better product for the end user. Um, and so to that point, uh, it also means that there's demand, uh, right? Because um, while we all, most of us are venture backed. Um, I think a lot of that comes from, you know, the analysis and due diligence uh, that we're seeing demand for each of these players. And there's a piece of the pie for all of us. Um, however, I do think we'll see very similarly to what we saw with, exchanges, um, more MA activity, and, and similarly to what you saw with Coinbase and Tagomi.
0: And so how does institutional trading grow even further? And where do you think that new demand comes from? You know, people like to say institutions, but that's a really broad term. Like, you know, that could mean, you know, that can mean a pension, but that could also just mean, you know, a little family office, right? So where do you think this next wave of institutional demand comes from? Right. You yeah. know, if it's coming.
1: Yeah, um, so what I'm very excited about is uh, corporate treasuries and the treasury moves that we've seen this year. And so you're seeing Square, MicroStrategy. These are really big moves. Um, and uh, going back to this uh, OTC style trading, these are moves that require multiple liquidity providers, TWOPs over time in order to you know minimize the impact on the market and the price uh, at that point. And so Corporate treasuries, I think it's going to be a really big push in the space. Um, The other thing you're seeing is uh, endowments. There are a lot of endowments uh, that have become very active in crypto that are investing, I would say, more in either hedge funds or venture funds. uh, And that's where their exposure to the crypto industry is coming from. Um, On the pension fund IRAs, I think... What we're going to see is that people want more structured products. Um, So whether it is Grayscale's Bitcoin Trust, uh, I I don't think that these are the folks that are going to be using, for example, Falcon X to actively trade throughout the day. These are folks that want to allocate capital um, to a trusted counterparty. And then, you know, after quarter over quarter, uh, analyze the returns from that investment. And then lastly, I think, you know, as it relates to family offices and hedge funds who are much more active uh, in the space, um, maybe the, you know, I would say middle um, of, you know, the, the pension funds, the IRAs on one side, the hedge funds in the middle, and then the liquidity providers on the other, they're going to be the ones that are most active, I think, uh, with platforms like Falcon X, um, as well as others in the space.
0: And so what are the next steps for Falcon X? You you, you mentioned when you were originally, you know, doing due diligence on Tagomi that Falcon X was a competitor, which was more like prime brokerage, right? An additional, you know, you know, you know, Tagomi at least was trying to offer a lot of additional prime services. So is that something that's kind of still on the roadmap for Falcon X? And, And where do you think the company looks like, you know, five years from now?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I wish I knew where crypto looked like uh, five years from now, but right, so I say five
0: know. days from now.
1: <laughs> yeah, five years and crypto is a really
0: let's go. Let's go, let's yeah. go two, two years from now. Let's go two years from
1: now. Um, no, I hear you. I hear you. I so you know one thing that I really applaud the leadership at X for is this undying um, want to create uh, this connecting tissue for seamless price discovery. Uh, and liquidity in the space. And that can mean very different things. And so whether, you know, if it's a DeFi wave that we find a way to do so uh, in a KYC regulated way, access liquidity to those markets and provide it to our institutional clients, then that's what we're going to do. Whether it's going to be, you know, perhaps on the market making side with being able to support um, protocols on one side of the business, then perhaps that's what we're going to do as well. But it always boils down to providing liquidity and building out the seamless accessibility to that liquidity as the industry matures. And um, I think, you know, as, as everyone has seen in the space, a rising boat uh, or a rising tide lifts all boats. And so um, hopefully as we continue to see more adoption and more folks coming into the space, uh, they'll all need some level of liquidity that we can service them with.
0: So yeah, something that you just alluded to there, which I think is really interesting and, and a lot of people don't realize is that a lot of times it's actually the tokens that have more cash than the actual funds have in this space. Um, you know, people people don't realize that. I mean, there there are plenty of token issuers that are still sitting on $50, $100 million in cash. I mean, certainly yeah. there are a lot that aren't because a lot of token issuers raised at $1,500 ETH and then never converted that to U.S. Right. Right. dollars, which was you know terrible treasury management. But then again, none of these people knew how to manage treasuries when they raised capital. That wasn't a consideration. <laughs> um, but, but a lot of treasuries are still sitting on a, 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 a large amount of capital. And, and us as a data provider, I mean, we're working with some of these treasuries because yeah. in mm-hmm. some cases they're trading a lot more money than the actual funds are. Right. Trading, I mean, what what's your perspective? I mean, do you think that there's, you know, going to be a growing TAM there and, and it's kind of still an un- untapped TAM? And in terms of market making for tokens, I mean, you know, do you see that being a, a long term opportunity or something that's just more short term in nature?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. I think uh, more short term in nature, and it all depends on um, kind of the ebbs and flows of the industry as a whole. And so similarly um, to where DeFi, uh, you saw a lot of tokens that wanted to list on exchanges that needed market makers um, to help, you know, support or create liquidity um, in order to... to trade, uh, then that was where the demand is. But um, to your point, I think it's it's very seasonal. Uh, what I think isn't seasonal um, is you know these protocols having to uh, you know trade out of their uh, treasuries. And so again, that's very similarly to some of the clients that will onboard. Um, they want seamless uh, liquidity offerings. Uh, some of them want you know T over time, and so they don't have to think about this stuff um, on a day-to-day basis. And so, uh, I think that's more long-term, but yes, to your point, I think, uh, anything that's really tailored to, um, something, some of these, um, you know, uh, seasonal, uh, trading, um, movements that happen in the space tend to, uh, I would say it's always like a three to four month time horizon, um, upon which then the demand just isn't as large.
0: And I have to imagine with market making for tokens, at least there's just an initial need for it, but then that kind of, you know, surpass, you know, like goes away after time, right? Like when a token, you know, will initially list on a Coinbase or a Binance or a larger exchange, they probably do need some of that, you know, market making on their behalf. But I feel like after, you know, you know, some a given, given period of time, there are, you know, funds that will kind of, you know, start doing market making for them and the liquidity grows that they no longer need those services as well.
1: Exactly. So I think it just depends on the protocol. Uh, if the protocol is listing on multiple exchanges, and that might be the case, if the protocol has really great traction with their community, then absolutely, I think that might be the case. And in either case, um, I think it all depends on what the protocol is trying to do. If the protocol is trying to market make um, so that there's enough liquidity for them to you know, uh, offload uh, some of their treasury, then that's also very, very important as well. Um, if the protocol is just interested in making sure that there is enough liquidity for X size, of that community, um, then I think that's a different approach. But each of these are are very, very specific. Um, and so it's, it's not a one size fits all.
0: And so just really quickly, and I know we hit on this before in terms of the number of assets you you list, but how do you actually determine which assets to add for clients? Is it client demand driven or, and you know, what kind of diligence do you have to do on any of these tokens?
1: Yeah, and that's a really good question. So it's it is client demand driven. Uh, we have an entire risk committee uh, that will analyze um, the token, uh, run a buyer compliance, uh, run a buyer counsel, um, and then make sure that you know see if it's as as we mentioned anything that's similar to a security we won't touch, um, and so on and so forth. But I would say it's very much demand driven.
0: And so the the one question that we ask all our guests is, how do you define fundamentals for crypto? Uh, and how do you think about crypto valuation? Does it depend on the token? And I think, you know, given your experience at Pantera, I know you're more on the equity side than the liquid token side, but I have to imagine at least you saw some liquid token deal flow. Mm-hmm. How how has that kind of changed over time for you?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, it's actually very interesting because uh, what we were seeing more recently now. Um, in DeFi was uh, kind of these equity liquid hybrid uh, investments. And so you would analyze the company. So what was really cool at large was that, you know, the companies by the time that they're raising had already perhaps uh, either raised a very, very small seed and had managed to build Uh, a product and a community um, that you could analyze the value on. And so very similarly to traditional FinTech, uh, you would do um, a fundamental analysis on the product, the product market fit, Um, You know, if they had any R&D costs or if they're in infrastructure, what's the R&D costs and what's the runway for something like that until you're able to build um, a feasible product? And then just the business model and token economics. Do you actually need a token uh, for this business to run smoothly? And then more traditional stuff where a team, the team's history, competitive advantage and previous investors um, as well. And I think, you know, that last piece is very, very important. Um, You know, if there is an investor that you align with very much in terms of their thesis um, and they've done the due diligence on a project. You know, obviously, always do due diligence on all of the investments that you do. But I think um, that really helps as well. Uh, and so, um, going back to your point in terms of what that looks like today versus previously, uh, I would say, you know, back at Pantera, there are still very much equity investments in DeFi. We're bringing back this kind of like ICO model. Um, That's hybrid equity uh, that then turns into a token and the token has cliffs. And so it's incentivizing different ways uh, in which you don't have like similar to what you saw in the ICOs. You don't have um, a liquidation event and everyone's just dumping the token. uh, Right. And so what you were seeing perhaps with Filecoin. As an example, everyone would own Filecoin, and then the minute it hit, you know, a liquidity event, it was just completely dumped. And so, um, they are very systematic ways uh, of, you know, having different cliffs for different um, types of investors. And I think uh, the creativity there um, is really, really cool. And of course, all of these two are are regulatory compliant um, and approved. And so, I think uh, that gives uh, investors a way to get access to these. Um, crypto investments that might not have the lockup that some of these 10-year funds do.
0: So you talked a little bit, or, or I mean, I guess mostly on kind of these these DeFi, you know, applications, right? And, and kind of, you know, valuation mechanisms there. But what do you think of about the argument of protocol versus application, right? Where where should the value accrue, right? Does the does success of DeFi, for example, mean that Ethereum should accrue value? How, how do you think about, you know, platforms Uh, And and like how an Ethereum would accrue value versus a token itself and whether both should accrue value?
1: Yeah, that's a really, really good question. Uh, And actually something that I was very frustrated with during the DeFi wave. So, um, you know, I would say like peak August, uh, I kept asking people, you know, I don't understand why Ethereum isn't past 500 at this point, right? Like if DeFi is exploding, why isn't Ethereum uh, since it's all built on it? And it's really, you're paying Ethereum gas fees. You have to, you know, move money into eth first um, before you can move it into these DeFi tokens. And I think we don't know yet, and the reason being is that we haven't had immense new capital enter the space, to which uh, you know that that can be challenged. That thesis hypothesis um, can be challenged, and what I mean by that is the reason that Ethereum. Price didn't pop uh, was because people were moving assets between different applications, um, and that perhaps the applications didn't have as much value as we thought they they did, uh, and therefore there was no huge amounts of new wealth entering the space.
0: And well, so- I think something to to take into consideration as well is during the ICO boom. I mean, most of the reason that ETH popped, if we're being honest, is because people had to buy eth to get into icos whereas here you're saying f- money is you know flowing between these different applications well with these icos people were needing to buy and buy and buy and buy and buy eth just to get into these new offerings which i think may have been part of the reason as well
1: yeah 100% but uh you know while to your point there were other on and off ramps into defi for example stable coins i think at large you still had to pay eth gas fees and have eth Uh, sitting in your wallet in order to make sure that transactions happened. And so um, I think, you know, I wish we would have had an event where um, we could have really challenged that question. I don't know yet. Um, And so I think uh, we shall see once we have an application that actually has like real adoption uh, to where new capital is being allocated to it.
0: Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. And, uh, you know, part of me kind of looks at Eth as like this is a terrible example, but kind of to me it's like the S and P five hundred in a way, right? Or it should be, it, it should hypothetically be where you're getting exposure to all of the underlying assets and the performance of those. Because I think it's very difficult to pick which application built on top of Ethereum will be successful, right? I mean, we saw that with Harvest Finance Day and the hack, and we saw that with the Sushi Swap rug pulling nonsense, and with you know. You know the five DeFi hacks that ha- happened in Q2, where it's it's going to be really hard to pick winners and losers there. And you know, hypothetically, you know, one would think that Ethereum should should in in some manner kind of act as a basket for exposure to all, or or at least I think investors may potentially look that way.
1: Yeah, that's a. That is a very interesting thesis, and I completely agree with you. I think to the extent that there are applications that have mass adoption on Ethereum, um, then that will happen. But if it's not Ethereum, it may be a different Uh, underlying protocol because Ethereum can't handle uh, that level of uh, adoption to date, even in, you know, during DeFi, it was incredibly frustrating um, to one, pay a hundred. I mean, we saw
0: that with CryptoKitties already, right? You know, even before DeFi and it wasn't even solved.
1: It hasn't been solved. Exactly. Um, But I mean, on the other side, you have DeFi projects like Balancer, who are becoming asset managers uh, and, you know, balancing different pools based on let's say five or six or 10 um, that you feel very strongly about. So uh, it's hard because um, on one side, I very much agree with you that that was at least what I was hoping to see um, and didn't see uh, the last six months. But on the other side, you're seeing other applications um, where all you need is, you know, stable coins to get into uh, these asset managers.
0: And so what worries you most about crypto uh, and what has you most excited?
1: Yeah, so what worries me most about crypto is uh, regulation in the U.S. Um, and the reason being is I think it's uh, up until uh, this year, it was very much a disadvantage uh, to crypto companies um, having such gray space around uh, how to view uh, digital assets, and while I think we're definitely one of the more progressive countries out there, um, I think the uh, regulation has just been very slow um, to adopt to some of these new uh, applications and projects and protocols. Um, and what you'll see is, at least on the centralized side, probably one of the largest expense any company has is legal. Uh, and you know, we'll we'll see what that looks like on the DeFi side as well. And then i think you asked me as well what is most exciting about uh crypto and uh honestly it's just the industry's approach of moving fast and breaking things it's uh so fascinating to see all of these different ways uh that crypto is finding to decentralize uh large players and so you know um you know whether or not You actually need it and there's actual adoption for it. I think it's just really fascinating the types of, at least on the finance side, the types of trading financial uh, problems that some of these companies are solving, getting rid of a centralized liquidity provider, letting everyone become a liquidity provider on their own. Um, And to your point, utility tokens. And I, uh, I'm very much excited. I think every morning you wake up to a new company trying to solve a new thing uh, in a very creative way, and I, I really applaud uh, the industry for being so creative and wanting to move fast and break things. Um, and then, of course, on the retail adoption side, I think uh, to anyone's point, I'm very very excited to see the application of of some of these, you know, notable remittance companies and and uh, stablecoin uh, settlement. Companies just applied to retail across the world.
0: And so, my last question, which I think is a a rather difficult question, um, is Is a Biden or Trump presidency more bullish for Bitcoin?
1: Oh boy, two weeks before the election. Here we go. Um, So, I actually.
0: Reminder, everybody go vote.
1: Please vote. (laughs) Uh, So, I actually think that. Either one of them would be bullish for Bitcoin. It's really not on the presidency level. It's very much on the Fed and Congress level. So these are members of Congress who have already been voted in, uh, who remain to be in office, let's say, for another two or so years, um, who are challenging right now some of the basis of crypto, which include encryption, uh, CBDCs. Um, and so I think it's very much based on the uh, judicial system um, and the checks and balances that we have uh, that you know are kind of independent from the presidency at this point for crypto.
0: Awesome. Well, where can people find out more about you, find out more about FalconX? Where can everybody follow you online?
1: Yeah. So um, if you just go to falconx.io, uh, that will be our website. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn. My email is Aya, A-Y-A, at falconx.io. And uh, I have Twitter, but I'm not as active as as you, Josh, and so I need to get up there.
0: <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to become a Twitter. I'm up to like 200 followers now. All so right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah
1: well, one, one day, one day. But until then, email is best.
0: <laughs> well, I will I will put all of your details below. I, I, I really appreciate your time and, and all of your insight. It was a, a really great discussion. would love to have you on again in the future.
1: Thank you, Josh. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.